This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Hope you'll take your Bibles out. Follow along in the scriptures that we have this morning as we're going to be looking at that story as well as another one in Matthew chapter 21 is, is where we'll begin. I'm going to begin reading there. Let me encourage you, by the way, while you're turning there, uh, to come Friday night we have our, traditionally our Good Friday communion service, and we are going to be having communion again this year, Friday night, but we're doing something a little bit different, a little bit special. Howard Taylor uh, who is a rabbi, a messianic rabbi, is going to be here and standing up here, and he's going to be demonstrating the Passover Seder, which is the meal that Jews have been eating for 3,000, 4,000 years, uh, and that Jesus and his disciples ate. And he's going to demonstrate that, what they did at the Last Supper, how it ties in with communion. You're going to be, uh, it's going to be really neat uh, to see and experience if you never have. Matthew Chapter 21, I want to begin reading uh, just verse 9. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed him kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken, saying, who is this? It's easy to hang with Jesus in a crowd, Uh, Most of us who are here today feel fairly comfortable singing songs about and to the Lord, as we've just done. Hanging with Jesus in the crowd may even be the popular thing culturally for the moment at different times in history. Um, I don't think it is right now. Around the world today, multiplied millions, just like you and me, are gathered in churches all over this world to remember and celebrate Jesus of Nazareth and his ride into the city gates, through the city gates, into the city of Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey and into the welcoming throngs of of a people who were longing for, I don't know if you picked it up in the video, longing for a political leader to come in and take them, make them free from the grip of Roman domination. And today, Palm Sunday begins marks the most controversial week in all of history because what happened in Jerusalem that week and into the next really was world-changing. Jesus was never one, by the way, to shy from controversy. The short trek that he made that day from Bethany, which is just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, to Jerusalem found him with a growing crowd as it got closer and closer, as all these pilgrims are coming into Jerusalem and they hear this is Jesus in the crowd, a growing crowd of both the curious and the confessors. And, and I don't know which you may be today. You may be a confessor or you may be curious. You may be already a believer in Jesus Christ or you may be trying to figure out who he is and what he's all about. But they were there just days before in the little suburb village outside of Jerusalem, the one who had become a sensation in both Galilee to the north and Judea to the south by his miraculous powers had done the impossible once again. This time it was his friend Lazarus who had been dead and entombed 
For four days, Lazarus responded to Jesus' clarion call in the cemetery. Lazarus, come forth. And out of the grave stepped this man who had been dead. Wide-eyed onlookers must have quickly spread the news around the village very quickly. You'll never believe what we just saw. The population of Bethany and, and, and the towns all around Jerusalem was swelling by the pilgrims passing through on their way to the weekly Passover, week-long Passover celebration in Jerusalem. And they were spreading the story. He raised a dead man to life. I saw it with my own eyes. And then earlier on this Sunday, the same day, earlier in the day in Jericho, two blind men, as he was passing through, two blind men heard he was coming. And they identified him as they cried out, Son of David, have mercy on us. By calling him the Son of David, they knew who he was. They knew he was the promised Messiah, and they were healed by him. So it was no surprise that on the Sunday that kicked off the week of the festival of Passover, that he was surrounded like he was by a huge crowd as he made his way into the holy city. Surely none of them other than Jesus. I don't think a single person in that entire city, not his disciples, not anyone, none of them could have imagined how the shouts of joy and exuberance in God's salvation would, within a few short days, turn into calls for his execution. Even his 12 disciples who had been given ample warning that this would be their last Passover with him, that this visit to Jerusalem would result in his crucifixion. He told them this. Even they seemed to ignore his purpose for this Passover. And I think maybe, you ever been to a parade? I think maybe they just got caught up in the moment. Hosanna, they cried. Hosanna means simply save us. They cried, save us. This tells us they believed he was the promised Messiah, the, the Messiah, the deliverer, the son of David. Hosanna in the highest, they called out, meaning we're calling on heaven. The angels come join us here on earth in praising him. Maybe they were asking God, Hosanna in the highest, maybe they were asking God to send the angels down now to join Jesus and become his army and defeat the Romans. Certainly they never imagined how the man they followed, the man some of them had already come to believe was the Messiah, how he would plummet in popularity with the people. Today he's called on Sunday the exalted son of David, the deliverer of the oppressed nation. Yet by Thursday, from Sunday to Thursday, something changes. And by Thursday, the crowds are going to call for him to be traded for the life of a known insurrectionist named Barabbas. We can be fickle, can't we? It's easy to be part of the crowd. Yet Jesus only knew, not only did he know that what would transpire in the coming days known as Passion Week, imagine, if you will, knowing that within these city walls in just a matter of days, you would be unjustly arrested and, and, and tried by a kangaroo trial court and, and executed for the crimes of others in just a few days. Imagine still knowing that, yet still being compelled by some, not by some suicidal death wish, 
but by your love for those who hate you. Being compelled, you refuse to retreat. You refuse to turn around. You refuse to say, I'm not going to do this. Of course, we can hardly imagine that. If I knew that there was a certain place this week where I was going to die, I would do everything in my strength not to go there. How many of you would say, me too, buddy? Just a couple of us. Okay, I don't know about the rest of you. I'm not going there, okay? Are you all with me right now? Everybody should have raised their hand. How about you? You're not going there. Still, only three or four people raise their hands. Wow. Okay. You're not Jesus, no. <laughs> the events of that week, which included stirring up even more controversy by upsetting the apple cart of hypocrisy, as he dealt with that amongst the religious elite, to the common people, were all very, these things were all very carefully orchestrated by something more than fate. Immediately when he got into the city, if we continue to watch the video, he would go straight to the temple, the holiest place in the holy city. And for the second time in his ministry, not the first, but the second, second time in his ministry, he would drive out the money changers who were there, who were robbing the people who had come to offer sacrifices by overcharging them for sacrificial doves. He told them, you've turned my father's house into a hangout for thieves when it should be a house of prayer. And by doing this, he was, why did he do that? He was claiming his lordship over the temple, which he would demonstrate on the day he was crucified when the veil in the Holy of Holies, that curtain that hung there separating the people from the Holy of Holies place where the Ark of the Covenant was as it was ripped from top to bottom. Who, who has the power, who has the authority to do something like that? The Lord of the temple has the power and the authority to do that. The blind and the lame came to him, calling him son of David, and he healed them because he didn't deny being David's son. He didn't say, no, 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 don't call me that. He didn't deny being David's son, meaning he was the heir to the throne and he was the Messiah. Because he accepted that, the chief priests and the lawyers were enraged. And the next day, Monday at the temple, the chief priests and the elders tried to entrap him. But his answers to their questions only entrapped them. He taught parables that very clearly charged the religious leadership with totally missing God's plan. And every time they tried to trick him that week, every time they tried to trick him into admitting he was the Messiah, he out-tricked them. Why not admit it, by the way? How come on Monday and Tuesday, when they tried to get him to say he was Messiah, why didn't he just go ahead and admit it? And the answer is because they would have immediately, on Monday or on Tuesday, they would immediately have tried to kill him. And he couldn't allow that to happen. Why? It wasn't time. It wasn't yet Passover. And over and over he confounded them. And over and over he fueled the fires of their anger against them. He even took time to teach that week about the future day he would return as Messiah. And he said, you're going to see me in the clouds coming back from heaven. The Passover that began, week that began with Palm Sunday and ended with his crucifixion 
was the culmination of an eternal plan that began before the world was created to make possible the reconciliation of you and me, estranged mankind. To bring us back into a family relationship with our creator God. And he knew what was going to happen that week. In Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2, it says, When Jesus had finished saying all this, he told his disciples, You know that the Passover takes place after two days. He's in the week. And he says, you know, in two days, Passover takes place and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now, there have been no calls yet for his crucifixion. That hadn't started. But he knew this is his fate. He knew this was the plan. He knew that the Romans have to be pulled into this. Why? How How do we know that? Because crucifixion was a Roman means of execution. The Jews didn't crucify anybody. The Jews, if you're going to be put to death, they would stone you. The Romans had to be pulled into this. And he knew all these things. One of the things that most amazes me about Jesus was he never looked for an exit. He never looked for the gate to get out of the city and never come back. He always returned. And throughout the week, the crowd from Sunday, that Sunday, that triumphal entry, Hosanna, throughout the week that crowd began to dwindle and when the going got tough, those most devoted to him abandoned him. Peter, we're told, after Jesus' arrest and the disciples scattered, we're told Peter followed at a distance. Not close enough to be seen with Jesus, but far enough away, not so far away that he was unaware of what was taking place. But when he was pressured, and you know the story, when he was pressured, Peter, the only one of his disciples anywhere close to him, cursed and swore and denied him. Well, a week or two earlier, what's interesting about Peter is a week or two earlier in Jesus' ministry, on another day, in which perhaps Christ was at the height of his popularity, there was an exchange between Peter and Jesus. I want you to go to Matthew 16. And follow with me as I read, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples a question. He said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, these 12 men, they, oh, they just threw out some answers. Here's what the people are saying. Some say you're John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist has been executed earlier. Some say John the Baptist Some say Elijah, one of the Old Old Testament prophets who's been dead for 500 years. Still others, Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet, or one of the prophets, you're one of the Old Testament prophets, is what they believe. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you're blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. St. Peter, who in a few weeks would deny who he was, we have this story. Peter knew exactly who Jesus was. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew he was the Christ. 
Messiah is the Jewish term. Christ is the Greek term. It means the same thing. He knew he was the son of God. And by the way, Jesus didn't deny what Peter proclaimed when he said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. He didn't deny it. In fact, he confirmed it in verse 17. And he looked at him and said, hey, you know what? Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You didn't see this on Facebook, Peter. You didn't believe this because any other person convinced you. You believe this because it was revealed to you by, as Jesus said, by my Father in heaven. And there's an important truth there. By the way, that means the difference between whether or not any of us belong to Christ and will be in heaven for eternity. I want you to listen very carefully. This confession from Peter indicated that something supernatural had happened within him. Almighty God had convinced him that Jesus was more than a rabbi, more than a carpenter, more than a miracle worker, that he was the promised Messiah. He was the Christ. And Peter knew this because of a change in his heart that was worked by God. Hear me. Belief in Jesus isn't simply an intellectual conclusion. It isn't saying some words because that's what everybody says I should do, I should say. I know many people who will tell you they believe in Jesus, but for them that means, hey, I recognize that he lived and he died on a cross, and I'll even recognize that he rose from the dead, and they may even go to church. I know husbands who claim to be believers and have even been baptized and joined the church because they're tired of their wives begging them to become a Christian. I know teenagers who saw the joy and enthusiasm of other kids they knew who were changed by the Lord's presence in their lives. And they said, I I want some of that too. And so they repeated some words that someone told them to say that meant they were accepting Christ. I know lots of children who get baptized because a parent said, this is what we do in our family. But please hear this. I I don't care who you are. If there has not been a supernatural God experience in your life where you placed all your trust in Jesus Christ, you have not become a Christian. You're just pretending. You're hoping maybe something counts. Jesus called it a new birth, and he called it the time when the old you dies and God gives you a new heart and gives you a new desire for him. It's not about going to church. I'm glad you're here today, but it's not about being here. Now, some of us are here because we have this new life. But it's not about going to church. It's not about joining a church. It's not about giving a tithe. It's not about being baptized. It's about a supernatural change that God does in you and me that causes us to believe like Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you've never had that new birth... And maybe you've been religious all your life. That was my mother's story. She had been religious all her life. She played the organ in church for Pete's sake. And that's right up there next to the altar. Religious her whole life, but no one had ever explained to her how to have a new birth, that she needed a new birth. She did all the religious rites, said all the right prayers, recited all the right things. If you've never 
had that experience of a new birth, but you want to know Jesus as Peter did, how tough is it to do that? And it's not tough at all. You simply believe that only Jesus can save your soul and change your life. You need to ask yourself this question. Have I had a supernatural new birth? Has that happened in my life? Peter got it, but Peter, like all of us, struggled with matters of faith. Peter wasn't perfect, was he? He was saved, but it took a while for his mind to be cleansed and and transformed and renewed. I want you to follow me with what happens just right after his confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God in verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples. He began to let them know, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Now think ahead with me a little bit. Even on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus was raised the third day who took his time getting to the tomb, uh, even though he ran, but he, he wasn't sure because he doubted that Jesus had been raised from the dead. It was Peter. Then Peter took him aside. Jesus is telling them, here's what we got to do. Going to Jerusalem, going to be arrested, going to be tried, going to be killed, going to rise from the dead. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever rebuked God in your life, but most of us had, have, you know, something happens unexpected that we don't really like, that messes up our schedule, that kind of sends us to places we don't really need to go or want to go, we think. And sometimes we have these thoughts, and remember, God understands our thoughts, and our thoughts are sometimes, God, I can't believe you're letting this happen to me. That's a rebuke of God to God. Here we began to buke. Jesus, and say, oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. You're not going to go, and they're not going to kill you. No, not going to happen. And what Peter was really saying is, I won't let this happen. But he turned and told Peter, verse 23, get behind me, Satan. You ever been called a bad name? Bet you've never been called a bad name by Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns but man's. Wham! Here he says you're the Messiah, the Son of God, a supernatural revelation. And Peter, that statement that he made, Jesus said, is the bedrock, the foundation of the church that is soon to be built. That church includes this body of believers. Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, you got it. Congratulations. You other guys, did you hear him? And then maybe, and it might have been in the very next minute, we don't know, Peter Jesus says to him, you're speaking like Satan who doesn't want God's will to be done in my life. And like Satan, you're trying to get in the way of what must happen. That wasn't a supernatural revelation in Peter's mind when he said, oh no, Lord. It was purely human and it was wrong. And so Jesus spells it out. Look with me at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, Come with me where? Come with me, where are we going? 
to Jerusalem where I will be arrested, where I will be killed. If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. And he asks them this powerful question. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? What will a man give in exchange for his life? He says to them, hey, here's the deal, fellas. I'm going to be killed. And you're going to have to be willing to follow me. And if you're about saving your own life, you'll lose. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll win. Peter heard this, didn't he? And Peter, these words were right to him. Peter heard this. I'm not sure any of the disciples understood it yet. By the way, great point from this lesson about Peter. Get this in your notes. Jesus never gives up on us when we fail. How many of you have ever failed the Lord Jesus? Would you raise your hand? Okay. He never gives up on us when we fail. Six days later, he would say to Peter, James, and John, the three apostles who would have had the greatest influence among the Jewish believers in the first century church, his best friends amongst the the disciples, he said to them, I want you guys to come up with me onto this mountaintop. And they went up there with Jesus and they saw him transfigured. Literally, he was changed in his appearance from who he was as Jesus of Nazareth to the glorious son of God as he is today reigning in heaven. They saw his glory. They saw what he will appear to be when he returns to this earth. And in that experience, as they're up on the mountaintop, we're also told they heard the audible voice of God the Father tell them, this is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Listen to him. But go back to Palm Sunday with me move ahead, I guess it would be, and what will happen in Jerusalem with the crowds putting down the palm branches, palm branches being a symbol of victory. Laying their coats on the street, Matthew said the whole city was shaken by his entry, and they really wanted to know who he was. And here's what we see from Jesus' time in the city of Jerusalem. He never acted or spoke to please the crowd. He didn't ask that a crowd be brought in. And through the week, he never acts or speaks to please the crowd. You know, Jesus wasn't a politician, by the way. He didn't put his finger up in the wind to see which way the the wind of popular opinion was blowing and whether he should make a move to take over and sit on the throne. If he was going to do that, this would have been the right time because the crowds were with him on Sunday. He had the votes. But he wasn't looking for popularity. His life was directed by how the, his life was never directed by how the crowds perceived him. And all the way to the cross, it was not for the crowd. All the way to the cross, it was to accomplish the will of the Father. So if Jesus never let the crowd determine how he lived or how he spoke or how he thought, as a Christian and someone who is to be following Jesus, neither should I. Crowd shouldn't determine how I think, how I act, where I go. The crowds were attracted to Jesus when he fed them with a meal, and then he performed a miracle. And for so many, 
I think for so many people in Jesus' time, Jesus was pretty much dinner theater. He's going to feed us and then he's going to entertain us. But when he began to say the hard stuff, when he overturned the tables, when he no longer fit their idea of a deliverer, the crowd began to pull away from him. See, I'm to follow Jesus, not the crowd. Follow Jesus, not the crowd. Why not? Because, and here's, you, you know, watch the news. The direction of the crowd changes almost every day. Following the crowds, you, know, you ever watch a flock of birds that are on the side of the road, and all of a sudden, I mean, there's 100, 500,000 of them, little black birds, you know, and all of a sudden they go up into the air. You ever watch which direction they go? They go this way, and then they go that way, and then they go back that way again, and you wonder, they're just, who are they following? You know what the answer is? Following the crowd. Finally, they might figure it out right. But have you ever seen them flying south in the summertime, late summer? You're thinking, you're going the wrong way. Turn around. Following the crowd. The direction of the crowd is what determines the whims of culture, and the whims of culture change. And in Jerusalem, the whim of culture and the direction of the crowd did a 180 between Sunday and Thursday. That quickly, the shouts went from Hosanna and proclaiming him to be their deliverer to give us Barabbas and crucify him. And we have no king but Caesar. Sunday, he was our king. No, we don't want him as our king anymore. We want Caesar. A treasonous thing for a Jew to say. Palm Sunday is a day that should be full of mixed emotions today and because on the one hand, we're celebrating with the multitudes, with the multitude shouting Hosanna. And on the other hand, we should be shouting to Jesus, turn around. Don't go there. This isn't going to end well. We've read the rest of the story. We know what horrible suffering he's going to endure. And by the setting of the Sabbath sun on Passover, he'll die a brutal death. See, Palm Sunday's a tricky day, this day, today. But it's a day worthy of our expectation and worthy of our exaltation. And if it has never grabbed your attention, perhaps this is the year to give it some thought. This week, beginning today, ushered in by Palm Sunday, was a week like no other in history. Nothing in history matches what happened this week. In fact, human history turns on the events that, that transpired this week. That includes your history and mine. So take time to consider this most controversial man. Jesus was the holy personification of God in the presence of unholy mankind. The people he came to save just like us. It's easy to look at Peter and go, you blew it. But I really, I look at Peter and say, I don't know Peter if I'd have been any different. People he came to save just like us had a hard time with him. His being there and coming into contact with the people he came to save had to result in controversy and confrontation. You see, it was who God is that week versus who we are. And when we see ourselves, our preconceived notions, we see these notions that we have about our own righteousness and what we deem to be moral and right, and we put those up next to Jesus we can only react in one of two ways. First, we can take offense and make excuses and give arguments. 
We can take offense. We can make excuses why we don't match up. Or we can argue about it. We tell ourselves that we're entitled to our own interpretation of right and wrong. And that means we're the judges, doesn't it? And they did this in Jesus' day by being offended that he came into their temple and disrupted their sacrificial system. But it was a system that fed their own corruptness and greed. Of course, Jesus justified what he did by doing what? He quoted scripture. Scripture is the revealed word of God. It's God's revelation of his will. Scripture is inerrant, which means it has no error. But it must be if it's God's word. How can it be God's word and have error? That makes no sense. Otherwise, it's man-made and it can't really be trusted. But if it's God's word, then not only is it true, but it's consistent. And it's not open to various interpretations. If it's God's word, then it is eternal in its truth. It's relevant to every generation and every culture. But if it's not God's word, then maybe it was only good for that time and has no relevance to this generation. Had Jesus just stayed with doing miracles and providing free food and not interjected the holiness of God into the mix with them, then he might have been accepted by more people, not offended anyone. And maybe even he would have escaped the cross, but that wasn't why he came. He came to reveal God to mankind and to show that even with our sin, he loved us and would endure total rejection if that's what it took to redeem us. The people of Jerusalem didn't want a Messiah who came to die. That's not what they wanted. They wanted a hero. They wanted someone to come in and become the political leader, free them from Roman domination. They wanted freedom from a foreign power, not freedom from guilt and death. And so when it was clear that he wasn't going to raise up an army, when he allowed himself to be trapped and arrested, then when even his closest friends were nowhere to be found, the people rejected him. And what started that week is the greatest celebration that held up hope to God's promise to Abraham and to David. That that promise was being fulfilled right then and there, that week disintegrated into hopelessness and ridicule as they watched him, wounded and bleeding, carrying a cross to his death. That death would be in God's eyes it would be payment for your sin and mine. It's why, it's why he came to be born in Bethlehem. He came to die a criminal's death that you and I might be given abundant and eternal life. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I have no idea how you must have felt watching your son Jesus ride victoriously into Jerusalem, knowing that just days away he would be crucified. And you would see him as my sin. You would allow him to pay my penalty and die, not just my sin, Lord, but ours, those in Jerusalem who worked so hard to have him killed. I thank you, Father, for your grace in Peter's life. Thank you for making his new birth a part of the gospel story so we could read it today. And my 
prayer this morning, Father, is for any here who have not had that supernatural new life. Not yet. To right now, turn to Jesus as their one and only Savior and forget, for, accept your forgiveness and, and your grace and your eternal life. Thank you, Father. Now, if today... You're here this morning and you have heard the message and you're ready now to receive Christ. Maybe you've been religious your whole life. Maybe you haven't. But you're ready right now to be born again into a relationship with him. All you must do is by faith believe that he died for your sin and rose to give you new life. Please don't let Jesus' life and death and resurrection go without transforming your life. If you're really today putting your faith in Jesus for his new life, if there's somebody like that in the room this morning, you would say, that's me today, Rick. Well, nobody's looking but God and me. Would you just slip your hand up in the air so that I might pray for you? Anybody at all? Today, I want to trust Christ Jesus as my Savior. Anyone at all? Thank you. I see your hand. Thanks. Anyone else? I pray, God, this morning for these men and women, Lord, this crowd that's gathered on this Palm Sunday. I pray, God, that we'll be different from the crowd that gathered that Sunday in Jerusalem. I pray for this one who raised the hand and said that today, right now, I'm accepting Jesus Christ as my Savior. Your word promises that when that happens, We're given everlasting life. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Listen, if you are accepting Christ today as Savior, uh, do me a favor and I want you to let me know. Simply fill out a communication card, one of those cards that's in the chairs, on the tables. And on the back side, just check the box that says, I'm trusting Christ as my Savior. And then, Uh, When we're done here, we're going to sing a song in a moment. When we're done, just come and bring that card up to me uh, so I can rejoice with you. All right, let's stand together. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.